when I was halfway through my engineering course, I did a, a computer science uh, module. It was my first um, software development work and I loved it. And I decided I enjoyed this more than anything else and this was going to be my future. But I couldn't make an immediate change. I needed to finish my degree. I had debts to pay off. Um, and the opportunities were still limited in those days. Um, in the programming space where I lived, they existed, but nothing on the scale they do now. So one had to tread one step at a time. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. Today is episode number 81. I'm your host, Roman Zelchenko. I am a former immigration attorney turned entrepreneur, uh, the founder of Laborless, which is an H-1B compliance uh, startup that automates the LCA process, as well as the founder of GMI Rocket, which is a digital marketing agency for the immigration and mobility space, um, and which of course brings you this show. Uh, today, I'm, I'm very excited to bring um, a guest that is doing something really uh, fascinating with uh, British nationality law, uh, um, and, and of course more as we'll find out. Um, our guest today is Bruce Menel, who is the CEO and founder of Aora. Uh, so we're going to learn all about what Aora does today and um, how Bruce got into the space of, you know, effectively building a platform that has codified British nationality law and is, you know, a tool that's helping um, UK immigration practitioners really be more efficient and effective, and particularly uh, with respect to helping, uh, you know, applicants figure out their potential citizenship or, or uh, British nationality. Um, but you know, even before that, I mean, Bruce has an incredible. Uh, life story and journey and ha had prior to that started a technology company in the fintech space, which was acquired. And, and it's just, you know, I love talking to people who are serial entrepreneurs because there's so much compounding kind of experience and information there um, that is that, you know, we can really kind of all learn from. Uh, so I'm excited for this conversation. And without further ado, Bruce, uh, thank you so much for, for being here. I appreciate it. And especially for joining all the way from the UK. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I love to, I, I know we kind of talked about this a little bit before. I, I love to, um, you know, kind of start a little bit before, of course, where you are today. For, for me, and I think for a lot of the listeners, it's, it's fascinating to learn about the person's sort of life journey and the decisions they made along the way and why and how that got them to uh, where they are today. Um, before we do jump into that, I just want to say to anybody who is watching uh, and tuning in on LinkedIn or YouTube or Facebook, uh, please leave a comment. If you have any questions for Bruce or myself, um, you know, leave it in the comments. Of course, if you like this conversation and are enjoying it, please give it a thumbs up or uh, any other kind of little reaction that you'd like. Um, so um, great. So, so Bruce, uh, you know, before you got into immigration and nationality and before you um, started Aora, of course, you had this other life sort of in the financial, um, in the fintech space. Uh, and I just, just a brief question, you know, I know you studied engineering in, in university. What led you to want to study engineering uh, when, when you, you know, 18 years old, you know, were you, were you sort of always interested in, in software or hardware? Did you, were you the kind of person who took apart you know, TV, TVs at home to see how things, how it worked. Now, what was sort of the impetus for you to go into the field of, of engineering? The impetus was that I 
was good with my hands and I found technology fascinating. In the time I grew up, I didn't have exposure to computers. Um, they existed, but but I was growing up in Zimbabwe, and, and they just didn't. They just weren't around. So my interest was really on the more of the mechanical side of engineering. And my brother had studied engineering, and I thought, uh, you know, it's a very practical qualification to have in Africa. So that's why I studied engineering. How how did your family uh, kind of end up? Where were you born? I guess like what was a little bit of your family kind of migration journey. My my family migratory history is quite complicated, but I was born in what's now Zimbabwe, um, and uh, you know my the origin on my father's side is from Britain, but we have Australian connections on my mother's side. Um, it is principally South African. So, you know, there was quite a, a sort of a mixture of different um, things. And, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the question of people's legal nationality is one that used to come up time and again. Um, so you, one becomes aware from an early stage Oh, that guy! He can he can he can get a certain passport, but his brother can't. You know mm -hmm. that type of thing. Did you did you move um did you move around when you were a lot when you were little? No, no, no. It was very stable from that point of view. My family always lived in one home. Oh. Uh, they moved once, but but it was a very minor move. Got it. Um, that, that that's that's interesting. What was it? Um, did you kind of you know? I mean, I I don't know any. I've never met anybody who grew up in Zimbabwe. Was it? I just, I'm just curious, kind of, did you go to a school with, like, an international school, or? Um... No, I, I I went to a local state school, um, which, uh, in those days, you know, the, the education was still segregated, um, but it changed in my last two years of schooling. And it was during the last, um, you know, I lived during the civil war in Zimbabwe, so... At school, we were, I guess, about a mile from the school was a minefield, and and the town got mortared several times. So wow. the sound of heavy gunfire is something that I did sometimes here, um, mostly at night. Um, but even occasionally in the classroom, you might hear something in the distance if the wind was blowing the right way. Wow. So a unconventional upbringing. Uh, I would say, although there are many parts of the world which sadly have this kind of thing going on. Mm -hmm. um, but it's amazing when I look back how pupils remained fairly focused on um, studying and preparation for exams and so on, despite all of this political turmoil going on. Did you, I mean, because I mean, I'm sitting here reflecting on how it would feel to be a kid sitting in the classroom or, you know, laying in bed consistently hearing gunfire. I mean, I guess you still felt that there was a future, that there was something to kind of work towards, right? R versus, you know, there's a civil war and who knows what's going to happen. Um, people were optimists. People are, can be remarkably optimistic. Well, maybe optimism is the wrong word, but. One hopes for better things, for stability. To some degree, one people live in bubbles as well. 
you know, there's information kind of bubbles where certain perceptions are cultivated. Um, but look, it was it, it it wasn't a completely stable situation. There was a large amount of emigration going on, um, and uh, but essentially, people were always waiting for some kind of political solution to emerge. Mm-hmm. You know, there was always this hope: that one day there's going to be an agreement, a settlement, and and everything will get better. You know, um, but uh, you know, but, you know, you'd, you'd You'd, you'd hear interesting anecdotes and you'd, you'd have your hopes raised. And, um, you know, I remember once um, uh, a friend of my father's, who used to be our neighbor, he briefed my father on a meeting he had had two weeks before with Henry Kissinger, who's still alive. Mm-hmm. And he said, Henry's said, you guys are going to sign a deal. And the tears came out of his eyes. And he said, you know, this, you, this was the best deal here. This is the best it's ever going to be kind of thing. Wow. That came and went, and then there was a new president with a new team, um, and it was a fresh set of... But it was all... I mean, this was the... Cold War was still going on, and different factions were getting their kind of support from different people. Yeah. Um, it was it was quite, quite sort of chaotic at times. I mean, yeah. really um, not you know, I how can I put it? You you what I guess the biggest lesson I got from that is important political events can happen, but you don't necessarily feel the impact right away. The impact can happen further down the line. Mm. And I had a very similar feeling here after the Brexit referendum. Mm. Um and I said people don't realise it, but the real long term effects of this are gonna be felt not not in the next two, three, four years. It'll be over the next ten years. Hmm. And um, you know that was that was I suppose one of life lessons for me really. Yeah, things happen, but they take time, and you're never quite sure. Just because nothing changes in the short term is not a reliable basis to say nothing's going to change. Things change. Absolutely. It also makes me reflect on kind of our political situation here in in the U.S. It 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 feels, you know, sometimes it feels really heavy with the news cycles, and and uh, but on on the other hand, I, I also reflect on what you're sharing in terms of you know really kind of a civil war going on and and really transformational events in the country, and it makes me kind of reflect on how we feel about what's happening in the U.S. You know, for me, I mean, selfishly, right, for me today. Um, but that, that's fascinating. And, and it's also kind of, you know, really incredible. Like you said, people are, are hopeful or, or people are optimistic uh, in a sense, even though maybe that's not your favorite word. But, you know, it, you have to be in a way if you're living through a, a time when you're not sure if you're going to be safe coming home from school, if you don't know whether your institutions are going to crumble or not. You know, how can you think ahead about university, about getting a job, about having a career? Um, so how do you, th- you know, but it sounded like as all this was happening, you sort of still had this kind of very, you know, logical forward thinking mindset where you said your brother was an engineer and you kind of looked to it and said, okay, this was practical. Um, maybe I'm reading into this a little bit, but I'm, but I still want to ask the question, do you feel like a practical sort of hands-on, 
um, you know, I don't want to say maybe lucrative, but perhaps stable job was, you know, kind of was something that made sense to you, given the fact that things around felt unstable, perhaps? Or am I reading into that? Per, you know, too um, I think that's a factor, but I would say that generally in Africa, you need most people at school have to shape their studies to earn a living from. Mm. It's not like it is in the first world. So the top, if, if I was to look at, you know, what people in my sort of situation that either become an accountant, an engineer, a lawyer, or a doctor, possibly a teacher. It's very much driven around what what work is available um, at a professional level. If you were, for example, in the arts, if you had artistic ambitions, you would be thinking more in terms of, am I good enough to make it? And probably I'm going to have to move overseas at an early stage because I'm not going to earn enough. There are exceptions, but it's, I would say, you know, artistic subjects are, are, are tougher in general because of the, the enormous amount of competition, but they're in a lot more tough in Africa. So a lot of people just say, look, I know there's ready jobs available for engineers, lawyers, accountants, and teachers. I think I'm going to, and, and doctors, and I think I'm going to focus on one of those. And if you think about it, those professions are not hugely different from what they are still today in many countries. But I would just say the, if I looked at those occupations when I was at that age, engineering was by far the, by far the most attractive to me. So I, I want to talk a little bit about kind of your university and experience. And, and I know you eventually went into the financial uh, um, industry. Um, what did you, I guess, what did you think you wanted to focus on as you finished university and kind of got you know, graduated? Um, did you want to go into building things, you know, with your hands? Did you want to, you know, how did you, I guess, yeah, how did you transition from your university kind of diploma and, and studies so, to finance? So... Um, in when I was halfway through my engineering course, I did a a computer science uh, module. It was my first um, software development work, and I loved it. And I decided I enjoyed this more than anything else, and this was going to be my future. But I couldn't make an immediate change. I needed to finish my degree. I had debts to pay off, um, and the opportunities were still limited in those days um, in the programming space where I lived. They existed, but nothing on the scale they do now. So one had to tread one step at a time. So I I finished my engineering degree. I worked as an engineer. Then I, and I did more software development work in my first job, which was a consultancy with quite advanced computing work. Um, and they encouraged the engineers to do to do programming, Fortran programming that were extremely um, uh, advanced in their thinking. Um, and uh, so I sort of knew then that I was going to move into software development. It was just a question of of how long, how you know, how quickly that transition could be made. Now, how did you how did you move eventually from there into the financial space? I mean. So, so there was a two two step process. I first of all had to get my first software job, and by this stage, I I was travelling. I'd come to London, 
and I was living in London. I made some inquiries to try and work in software that didn't really go anywhere. I then got an engineering job. I had an opportunity to do more software. And then I got a job offer with a small software house, which as it happened, did financial software. And to be more specific, software for the capital market space. And I, it was a great opportunity. I took it. I learned a lot. And I learned from the owner of that business that don't be afraid to go, you know, to go for something big. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is how I got into it. It fulfilled an interest because I'd become very interested in capital markets. I read the major books. And, of course, at that time in the early 90s, the city was in a very sort of expansive, exciting, exciting mood. And um, as it happened, the, the software I worked for, their biggest project, uh, which occupied most of the staff until before I, shortly before I joined, was for the famous Drexel Burnham Lambert that um, imploded in New York. And they managed to buy that IPR, and then they worked on that and expanded it. So it was an interesting project, and I learned a huge amount from that. Wow. And then I made a leap. I went there from there. I joined Deutsche Bank um, in a proprietary trading operation where I took care of the software and system needs. And um, and that's where I worked for, you know, some time. If I can ask you, what do you, I don't know, and if you can pinpoint this, but what do you think was interesting to you about finan- FinTech specifically, this sort of, you know, uh, intersection of the financial world and complex, you know, trading or, or modeling and whatnot, and how software can enable that. So I became, I suppose, intrigued by financial instruments. Mm-hmm. I don't claim to have an, um, you know, a phenomenal knowledge, but all the major instruments I understood and interested me. Um, and I was in, you know, what software has to model those instruments has to model the operational processes, you know, things like valuation, analytics, uh, the trading of them, the accounting, the PNL, and so on. I found that very interesting, where human tasks which would be performed by a person could be modeled in the software and turned into a process which was, you know, had very low unit cost and could scale phenomenally. And you should remember in the early 90s was not long after uh, these things were done manually. So until the, you know, mid-1980s, late-1980s, big firms like Drexel, they still had guys on the trading desks using pencil and paper to keep track of what was going on with the trading. Um, Then uh, they managed to... You know, then they brought in software. There was, uh, I think, an impetus for that was Lotus, Lotus One Two Three, which was the first spreadsheet. But then they started building purpose-designed software, and you know that's where they. Were, I, I I think the whole concept of for different business areas, you write software, model the processes, and and make it, um, you know, as efficient and um, value-adding as possible. And uh, that to me was intriguing. You know, how, how do you just being able to do that modeling process and, and make it work, especially using databases, because I love databases and a well designed database 
can really make a big system much more powerful and flexible and maintainable. And Did you? Uh, I learned a lot of that from from one system. Did you ever feel at that time that um, there was pushback? You know, and this is going to be a little bit of foreshadowing to you know talking about Aora and kind of the immigration industry. Uh, but did you ever feel that there was pushback that said, well, you're taking away the jobs of, of all the traders that are spending their time, you know, maybe manually doing certain things? Was, was that ever a, a part of the conversation or was the industry as welcoming as possible to technology? No, I think it was pretty welcoming. And I think the main reason for that is the volumes were just going up year after year mm. from the from the late 1980s. You know, there were some down cycles, but by and large, they were going up. And there was no, it was going to be impossible to do the stuff manually. So I think the people who had done the manual work, um, you know, apart from maybe the old ones, um, you know, just, just, just switched over to using software an increasing amount. No, I think it was because it was in a growth state, there wasn't a problem. It was a matter of necessity because the manual processes were limiting the growth. Hmm. And uh, I think it was clear to everybody there really wasn't an alternative route. It was also also very important for the banks to remain competitive and to take advantage of bigger business. Uh, so they, they had to do it. And I think that decision was understood at a, at a number of different levels of management. I want to just take a small uh, note here. We have Bojan. Um, listening and watching, greetings to you both. Happy Friday. Thank you, Bojan. Um, where... And I forget, but Bojan, tell me, tell us where you're you're watching from, because I often love to see kind of how global these conversations are. So, so thanks for your your comment. Um, so, yeah, and, and that it makes a lot of sense, and I, I do want to get back to that notion, you know, kind of in, in a little bit when we get to um, Aora. So, uh, okay, so you, you've sort of, you know, you found this this in, deep interest in financial technology. You obviously were, you know, were working for a, a consultancy that was. Um, leading the way in in many ways technologically, you joined this really big bank uh, to help them. Um, you were the head of technology, or at least I guess you ended up as as head of technology there for one of the um, departments. Um, you know, the big question here, of course, is well, what inspired you? I mean, it sounds like your career is going on this wonderful trajectory, um, and you're growing and getting into uh, bigger organizations. What made you say, "I'm going to leave all of this behind and start my own"? start my own company you know what what was that um, moment um it was driven by events because the the department i joined um a decision was made this was a very long and involved political process but the decision was made to close it down mm-hmm. and uh, it, it took a it, you know there was a sort of a, a quite a sort of you know protracted sort of political struggle that went on for a number of months, but it was clear from a certain point it was going to shut down. And I had really two choices. I could either stay at the bank and move into some into the IT area, um, or I could leave. I had discussed with someone I knew the possibility of starting a software house because I looked at what was happening in projects in the bank, IT uh, software projects, which very often, you know, overran, they ran over budget, often under-delivered, um, and I felt that fundamentally they didn't get their database models designed properly early on. 
And I discussed this with a friend and I said, you know, I am thinking maybe of starting a software house. Would you be interested? And slightly to my surprise, he said, yeah, you know, keep informed. And then when this department was going to close down, they offered quite a big uh, exit package. I thought, well, it's now or never. So, you know, or, you know, this, this is the moment. And so I, I took the package and I started my little company, Beecham Financial Technology Limited, and I worked in my flat and, and just started writing code. And, um, and, and designed a database, of course, you know, that's really important. But, you know, that's, uh, that's how it started. I was quite um, naive, I suppose. I didn't really think through a lot of things um, about how we were going to market and sell this. This was in 1999, which was also the run-up to the Y2K, um, you know, event, and um, that made many banks very skittish about buying anything. But nonetheless, we built what we called a platform, a toolkit, which was targeted at the sell side, which is like the broking side of the investment banks. Mm. As things turned out, nobody was interested in buying at that point. We did, for a time, have a potential uh, backer or purchaser Sponsor, sponsors the word they use. We had a potential sponsor at Merrill Lynch, but then he suddenly left his job and we were left out without a sponsor. But I was quite lucky in that some of the people I knew in the proprietary trading department, Deutsche, had joined hedge funds and I started making inquiries about hedge funds. And I went along to the prime broking departments of the large banks like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and I spoke with them and I said look we're building we built a platform and we're thinking of re we're going to rework it for the buy side in other words the asset management side and they said yep there's a big gap in the hedge fund space there's a need for a good system good, a good package solution and guided by them you know we we adapted what we had and fortunately nearly all we had written so far um, worked well. You know, we didn't have to discard anything because the sell side and the buy side are basically mirror images of each other. And we we built out a package solution, which we called, which became known as Fund Manager. Um, but getting the first customer was very difficult. That was the result of a chance meeting. Um, and, you know, once you've got some customers, there was one interesting thing. The prime brokers said to me, we think what you're doing is is, is, is is going well, but we're not going to tell anybody about you. We don't want to take the risk that we tell them about you and they buy your stuff and it doesn't work because then they'll blame us for mentioning your name. Mm. So we I had to we had to get, find that first customer ourselves and a chance meeting provided that. And, you know, after they were happy, we then started to get some leads. And the volume of leads we got grew. And, um, and then... You know, we got some quite big customers and everything became, at least in terms of getting leads, a lot easier. Obviously, the amount of work we had to do grew phenomenally. There's so many lessons there. You know, I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on my own experience as you're talking. You know, one of the first that stood out to me was this idea that you had somebody who was, you know, purportedly on your side at a, at a large organization, but then they quit. And so, you know, you sort of... You, 
you, you realize in that moment that, oh, wow, I, I can't control any of these things. It all feels like it's going right. But then if everything is concentrated on one person that is going to, it, it is, you know, if you think at the time is going to make or break the situation, it's just, I can imagine a lot of entrepreneurs at that moment saying, well, we had that one chance, the person left and might as well just close up, you know, shop and, mm-hmm. and go work somewhere else. Um, one question that I had, and, you know, we don't have to go too deep into this, but I'm sort of just curious, did you have anyone in your family, in your life who was sort of entrepreneurial? And I asked that because when I was growing up, I always had a million ideas. It was almost fun, you know, talking to my parents or something about like these wacky business ideas. Although I reflect on some of them, they weren't, they weren't that bad, but I never, it, it never even occurred to me that I can do something about it. It was just an idea that I could just throw out into the world and we could laugh about it for 10 seconds and move on. Um, what gave you sort of that initial confidence when, you know, okay, you noticed the gap in the market, you saw that the software uh, that you that was being built in-house perhaps wasn't develop, delivering uh, all it could. You still had to have that belief that you could not only build the thing, but create a business out of it. I guess I'm curious, you know, you said maybe you were a little naive. Was it just thinking, oh, this will be easy? Or did you have any influences or inspiration in your life from an entrepreneurial I I think there were a number of factors, but the thing you just mentioned, this is, I, if I'd known how difficult it was going to be, I probably would not have done it. Right? There is a big element of luck, you know, like people you meet, timing, our timing turned out to be good for hedge funds because they were in a growth state from uh, 2000 onwards. Um, I think it was a number of factors. I. I think one important one is that I worked in a software house mm. when I first came to London, and I I knew how a software house could be run. I saw how things worked. I could see the mistakes they made. I wanted to do things differently. And I realized it isn't... Um, software development is difficult, but if you've worked in that environment, you can see ways of doing it. And... You can also see how much money is wasted when big organizations try to build software internally. That's what I saw in the bank. And therefore, you kind of see, well, there's a logical argument here. We can do this stuff. We can build some very powerful software. We can build it more cheaply. And because it's good, people are hopefully going to like it and buy it. That's quite naive. It's never that simple. You do need relationships. We were lucky in that we we found people uh, in the in the big banks in the in the pro brokers who had clients who had a need and and we worked on those relationships, kept them kept them happy, kept delivering. Um, I think there wasn't really much of an inspiration. I, I guess later on, lots of people were starting software businesses, but in the end of the 90s it wasn't that common it was still quite a dive um i guess another thing that encouraged me to do it is apart from getting some cash from the bank when i left i also had an opportunity to remortgage my flat and that provided me with a means of supporting myself and i said well i can survive for you know three years with it if i live carefully um, and, and I thought, well, you know, it's now or never. Let's just just go for it. I I don't know quite 
why I chose that. I think it was partly because I couldn't see any other quick way of doing it. Mm. I was kind of by that stage just a little bit too old to get into big organizations and work my way up because if you looked at the banking area, the guys who move up rapidly tend to be people who come in the graduate intake program. You come in a bit later, it's quite hard. How, how old were you at that at that time? I was 35. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not impossible, but it's more difficult. Mm-hmm. And I could see ways, you know, the, the numbers look good. You, you know, software, you license it to so many clients, you get this much money. There were many, what I thought logical, um, the, 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 the logical case was there. Um, but what I had, where we were quite lucky is that the timing was good, there was a market, there was a need, and there was a way of building relationships with guys who, who would give me, who would give leads. And, uh, and so my, I'm very cautionary in talking to young people and start stuff. You've got to get a number of things in place. Um, and, um, uh, you know, obviously one wants to encourage disruptors. And, you know, I have, I've gone down a much more high-risk journey, I suppose, in some respects when I started out with the software I did subsequently. But I didn't really get that, um, get much of a, a steer. I guess in the early 2000s, you did start to see, you know, I suppose at the end of the 90s, you, you got a flurry of startups, but a lot of them were commercial rather than software. Right. The software startups sort of started to come in after 2000, and it, it kept climbing. Yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. So I, I'm just a, maybe a serum, serendipitous. <laughs> and, and and look, there's and that's kind of why I was cautious about asking that question. Sometimes there is, you know, that really direct answer of, well, yeah, my uncle started three businesses when I was a child and I saw it happen. And other times it feels like a, a confluence of various um, things. But no, that that's that's really wonderful, you know, uh, insight there. And um, I think a, a large portion of it, too, was sort of seeing what was happening in the industry. It sounds like having a little bit of financial uh, security, right? Where, you know, you, you can wait a little bit because it obviously does taking a little bit, it does take some time, but the naivete, at least for me, certainly played a huge role uh, in, in thinking uh, that it's a good idea to start a business. So I, I know that you know, your business was eventually um, acquired and, you know, I don't want to dive too, kind of too deep into that because I do want to get into the, you know, the story of Aora, but I, the reason I asked this question about entrepreneurship is because when you got acquired, um, you, you worked for, and I'm blanking on the name of the company that acquired your software. Um, it, Line Data. Line Data. Yeah, thank you. Um, they, you, you ended up working there for, for some years after the acquisition. No, not really. Oh, um, okay. I stayed on until the, the whole earn out process finished. Mm-hmm. And then I moved on um, because I wanted a breakout work to, you know, it had been a ten-year, ten-year process, and I was quite tired, and I, yeah, needed a break. So, can I ask you, uh, what did you do during that break? I did some traveling, and um, you know, I just wanted a break. I, I, I guess I had worked in the capital market space or asset management space cumulatively at that point for about eighteen years, and I was very tired of it. Um, 
You know, I could walk down a street in the city and, you know, I'd keep recognizing people. And Okay, it's, you know, in one sense it's quite nice, but in another sense it can be, I think, a little bit um, overwhelming. And um, I wanted a change. I really wanted a big change. And I got married um, and um, so... No, I wanted to. I wanted to do. I decided that whatever I was going to do needed to be outside that space and completely different. So I guess maybe that's a great uh, a, a great segue for me to ask you: How did you sort of then get into the? Because before you got into nationality, it's if I understand correctly, you kind of started to think about the legal industry a bit more broadly and how technology could disrupt that is that is that correct is that kind of where you're yeah so for i had always had all the way through from university days i had a kind of casual interest in the law mm. um how the law works you know and i always thought well hang on the laws is basically a set of rules it's deterministic it it should really it does parts of it certainly lend themselves to being uh, modeled in, in some form of system. And I had that interest, and I thought this this is something I should look at one day. I also developed some, I had some interest in nationality because it was a sort of a side hobby. I used to help get people mm. uh, British and Irish citizenship um, when I was at, um, you know, my last year at university and in my initial years of working in Cape Town. And I thought, um, this is interesting. And then I found a paper, a very important academic paper done uh, in the late in in the nineteen eighties at Imperial College, which looked at British nationality law as a case study for a computer logic program. And it said yes, it could be done, but there'd be some major difficulties to overcome. So I thought this is interesting. And I knew a guy whom I'd worked with whom I thought, if there's one person in the world who's going to crack this, he, he might be able to do it. And so I worked, he, he, there was a point at which he was looking for a new job, and I said, come and work for me, we'll start this experimental project. And so it kind of happened, there was no big plan, um, it was sort of a series of um, sort of, ideas, intentions, and we drifted into that. I drifted into that, and then it was like, well, let's try these. Let's try and do this, try these experiments, let's see where we get, and so on. Um, so, it, and at the same time, although we chose UK nationality law as the subject matter we modelled, it was... In, at one level, an enormous case study, because really I saw the platform, which is, you know, configurable as something with potential to other areas of law. Mm. And we studied the academic material. In the end, we decided to build our own um, our own solution. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was no big plan it was just a sort of a series of a series of developments and now and and so at, at this point you um and who is this person by the way if you can share or you know that's alan that's uh, alan billington who is uh, alan 
um, our senior developer um, had a you know he's got a first class mind and um, you know very rigorous and insightful logic and in his thought processes and and he he was a he from an early stage was also a believer that this could be done. Was Alan working somewhere full time at that at that time, or did you sort he of? Was, he, yeah. he was until shortly before. Okay. And then I heard he was um, looking for employment, and uh, uh, and we had a discussion. And and just you know, uh, and mine. I guess the way that I would imagine it is at this point, and you had obviously sold your prior company. Um, so were you sort of just self funding this in the beginning stages yes. to explore? I, I was self-funding it, and um, you know, um, yeah, that's that's how it was done. Yeah, yeah, and that's I mean, and that's and that's great, right? It's 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 so cool to if you think about uh, the the sort of the cyclical nature of this, but the, how it blossoms. Your first business, um, you kind of you sat down and you started to build out a database. You didn't know what was going to happen, whether you're going to get clients. Um, and you were sort of bootstrapping it, if you will, but really kind of picking yourself by the bootstraps. Um, and, and, but of course, then you went through this whole process of building a company, growing it, selling it. And now it feels like, at least the way that I'm kind of hearing it, you had a little bit of time to explore the, the, uh, you know, academically explore where you were going to go because it didn't, fe- it sounds like it didn't feel that you had a necessarily a concrete end goal. It's not, you know, it wasn't, I'm going to build a database that, solves this problem I'm seeing in a better way. It was, here's an interesting kind of intellectual problem. Can we build some software around it and make it viable? It was almost more like an exploratory. Yes, it was. It started out very much as an exploratory exercise. And then as we codified more and more law, we continued extending the platform, building out this quite rich infrastructure, which is really what makes it possible to write rules that are relatively simple, because there is this very rich ecosystem around them. And that took time, and we would hit problems, and we'd have to stop and and brainstorm and experiment to find solutions. And that's why, you know, we, we've submitted patent applications for various things that we developed along the way. Um, so yes, the, 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 we, d- you see the difference, I guess, between my first company and my second, the first company, we were doing something that others had done before, but we wanted to do it better. With, uh, Aura, there really wasn't anything you know people had dabbled in expert systems there had been some expert system uh, efforts to codify law uh, mostly in academia and in general people said yes it could be done but it's extremely difficult um, and it's not worthwhile and blah 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 what they had not done probably because there wasn't the time or the money for it was to build a rich infrastructure so that you can add new laws quickly. You know, you can codify new law quickly. That's the bit that um, they weren't, it was probably infeasible for them. Um, and I, I would also say, you know, Alan and I, we're patient people. You know, we, we are, um, you know, 
we are we're not marshmallow guys we we are we know it takes time and a lot of work and frustration and disappointment before you get something working to a standard that um is going to is going to be fit for purpose because something is going to be easy enough otherwise it just isn't viable okay and you know we can now once the decision once the the we we go through a process where law is analyzed and then we spec out its behavior in and but the process of deciding what the behavior is that's the time-consuming part. You've got to study the law, you look at the case law, you look at the government guidance, um, and then you think, okay, I think this is how it behaves in these situations. That's the time-consuming bit. Once you've decided that, putting that into Aora is quick. Um, so we were building the infrastructure to make it possible. As it turned out, we'd chosen British nationality law, which in hindsight was perhaps a poor choice in as much as the volume of that law is, is uh, 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 you know it's gargantuan it's just a horrifying amount of it and um, not something you know you know anybody should have should have really chosen as a case study um, when I look at other areas of law they're much more self-contained they're smaller um, and they simpler because a lot of the new nationality law is drafted in very weird ways and um, ends up being quite complicated. In the end, I guess one benefit of choosing that area of law is that it stretched the platform. So I am unafraid about any other area. You know, I've spent some time more recently looking at other areas of law like tax law and compliance. There's just nothing there that worries me. I view it as all considerably simpler than nationality. That's great. Um, you kind of, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. I think that uh, one of the terms that people use on a daily basis for task management is eating the frog in the morning. You sort mm -hmm. of start with a difficult task. Um, and th this, what you're explaining is sort of a, in the grand level where you really built out the system to account for one of the most difficult areas of law. Now expansion into other areas is fairly um, it sounds like fairly manageable, which is amazing from a scalability standpoint. Um, I want to just uh, bring in uh, Sean left a comment said here, I've known Bruce for 20 years, but have not heard some of these insights before. So um, thank you, Sean, for that comment. And, and you know, of course, Bruce, thank you uh, as well. Um, so I think this would be a really great time for me to now ask the very simple question of well, what is Aora for people who are listening? You know, what can they, what does Aora do? And, and, and uh, how does it work? So I'll explain it in two stages. Um, first of all, AORA is an acronym. Assessment, Opinion, Report, Application. And if you take a typical area of law, um, it could be, for example, citizenship. Someone, a client comes to, or a prospective client comes to a practitioner and says, do I qualify for the citizenship? Or do I qualify for this or that? Or tax rebate or whatever and a practitioner will then gather some facts and then work through the laws that are relevant to the objective um, gather more facts and then eventually come to a view it may be done in stages it might be a preliminary view it may be substantive view but essentially there's an analysis of the law and a gathering of facts 
And then what Aora does is it it's automated that in a package solution. So the to give it uh, to make this tangible, I will talk about what we have currently implemented, which is UK, nationality law of the UK, and we have also done Ireland and. To a certain extent, we've done other countries as well because we had to, like Canada, up to a certain point. We haven't modeled them fully. We've done it up to a certain date. And what it does is in Aora, uh, you create an inquiry for a person. You identify what um, you're interested in. You know, is it um, the UK is unique and that it's got lots of different nationalities? We generally just say, just by default, let it evaluate you for all of them because it'll find out what it'll check you out for the most interesting one first and so you kick off an inquiry Aora um, evaluates the law it gathers data from the user and then it reaches an outcome and the outcome might be yes or no it may be the case that it's a what we call a an interim outcome because the user did not have data for all the questions and had to answer unknown and assume values were used. Like somebody doesn't know when, for example, a grandparent was born, they might just say, well, I don't know, and their system will assume a date based on a sensible choice, you know, based on typical factors. And then from having had the outcome, the user, if it's a, if it's a positive or negative outcome, there is always a report available which the practitioner can supply to their client. It is in the form of an explanation as to what's been done, summary of the outcome, the assumptions made, and then it explains what the next steps would be. Um, you know, and what's interesting is I took the view that by looking at one of the most successful practitioners in the nationality space, they their approach was in their reports, even if it's negative on the citizenship side, um, provide some pointers to what could be done on the immigration side. Mm. So in our negative outcome report, negative for nationality, that is, uh, the report does provide, and it's not just boilerplate text, it's highly sensitive to the uh, situation of the person, what possible immigration alternatives are available. Mm. If, the poll, uh, if the outcome is positive, then it, it's, the report has many differences, but essentially the last part of it is a bit of a sales spiel, you know, trying to say, well, you know, this is what can be done. Now, typically in Britain, this uh, would form part of what's called a client care letter. It might be separate, but it would often be incorporated. All the documents coming out of Aura are Microsoft Word format, so they can be easily incorporated or changed. And in fact, the templates are fairly flexible, so we will respond to change requests um, from, from, from our customers. If the outcome is positive, an additional report is available, which uh, is the materials for an application, there are instructions on what to do in case the practitioner doesn't know. There is a pre-drafted letter of representation to the Home Office. It would could would either be to the Nationality Division if it's an application for a grant of citizenship, or it would be to the Passport Office if the person is already a citizen. 
And in either case, the letter of representation sets out the application, uh, explains why the person qualifies. It provides a draft list of documentary evidence which the practitioner needs to supply. And that document list is very carefully drawn up. It provides alternatives um, because sometimes the you know, the best form of evidence is not always available. And the in some in some provisions for a grant of citizenship, especially naturalization, if the standard requirements are not met, there is, depending on the magnitude of the shortfall, there is a potential for a discretionary waiver. So, for example, if a person has been absent from the UK over a five-year period in excess of the standard requirement, which is 450 days, then depending on the magnitude of the excess, there is discretion. And what we have done in our letter of representation is we have incorporated uh, text from the guidance published by the Home Office, which is highly specific, so that the practitioner can look at that and choose what is appropriate. The guidance is a big document, you know, it's it's like 50 pages long and um, and we only put in what is relevant. Um, so uh, we are really, the amount of, oh yes, and then the final thing which we are adding is that we will pre-populate the online application forms with the data that's been gathered in the inquiry. And, you know, the the exciting part of the system is the brains of the system, which is exploring every opportunity, every, you know, trying out every law to see if a person qualifies. What makes it um, complex for UK practitioners or people who want to go to the UK is that the avenues to citizenship are not necessarily limited. So you get a somebody who might want to migrate to the UK from the US, they've got some British or Irish ancestry. There, if they, uh, uh, it, it's now possible because of uh, a new law that came out, came into operation in uh, June, it's possible now that that person might qualify for immediate British citizenship. Mm. And those avenues will be fully explored by AORA um, so that the practitioner knows, okay, we've checked this out. Um, there is no claim to citizenship. They're going to have to have an immigration solution, a particular type of visa. Or maybe there is a citizenship solution, um, which you know potentially can cut costs and save huge amounts of time and money um, because getting citizenship through residence is a long journey. You know, it's like, depending on the personal situation, any between three and six years of residence. And you have to write a test and you've got to pay this health surcharge. You know, there's there's all these added complications. And if the our view is that um, the law is now so complicated, it's going to be very difficult for the average practitioner to do this assessment properly. And they really should do that assessment properly because they have a duty of care to their client to do the best job they can. Um, and look, this this has been a bit of a problem for some years, but I think this new law has just taken it to a much bigger level. And 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 it sounds like um, 
So uh, if I can sort of try to distill that. So number one, Aora, the on, a, on an infrastructure level, you have codified and codified meaning in uh, programming language, the, the British nationality, the full text of the British nationality law. So all of the ifs and thens and buts and ors and all of the different variations of what somebody's case may be vis-a-vis British nationality law, you have programmed into the software. Um, and so, and the idea is that, I guess the way that you've explained it, UK immigration practitioners, let's just start with them, and then we can talk about okay. how other practitioners around the world may benefit given this new law. The idea would be, it sounds like UK immigration practitioners can use the software to assess a an existing or prospective client's potential ability to get some sort of a UK nationality, uh, and, and if no, perhaps what other immigration options they may have. Um, and I suspect, I mean, this is an immigration technology conversation. The idea would be they could do this way more quickly than they would if they have to would have to sift through all the law, all the laws, um, of course, manually. And it allows them to uh, have sort of the added benefit of some sort of documentation that's pre-populated for them that they can effectively use um, to to provide to the client. Um, would would does that sound kind of accurate as to a use? Yeah. Yes, it does. I'll just qualify it slightly by saying we have not, we've codified some UK immigration law. Mm. We've done it where it has a bearing on the citizenship. Got it. Right. Okay. We haven't gone to it in a big way, um, but we've done it in the areas where it's necessary. We can add, and people are suggesting that we add support for certain immigration rules, and we may well do that, but at the moment, the immigration law we've done is around what's called citizenship. Um, but, you know, some of the old immigration law is is covered, like the pre-1973 immigration law, because that has a bearing on And that, that is the same law that has caused a crisis, the Windrush crisis. Um, it's old law. People have forgotten about it. Um, but it works in some quite, you know, interesting and unusual ways. Um, so... Uh, I would say it's kind of like the practitioner at the moment, the practitioner, yes, the practitioner could in theory do an evaluation, but it'd be the, the trouble with nationality law is just so much of it that it's the specialists who are really the only ones who can keep on top of it all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a big time investment to get up to speed. And then if you're doing it manually on a per case basis, it's quite a lot of time as well. And in fact, um, one very successful practitioner said to me, he's he actually knows British nationality law very well, but he said to me, the problem I have is I'm going to have to quote an inquiry, you know, it's going to be two to four hours of my time at my rate. And, and the outcome, there's no guarantee right. that it's going to be a positive outcome. And it's hard for me to expect my clients to spend that money you know but if i if i don't do it then i might they may get an immigration solution and live in the country for six years and discover in fact they could have got british citizenship you know six years earlier right um it's it's a it's a interesting situation um and i think the uk has this problem more probably than any other country that 
um, uh, potential potential uh, visa or mi- migrants or customers potential customers for an immigration practitioner have these um, through the historic laws these unusual routes to citizenship, and that's based on sort of uh, colonies and islands and things like that, and the connections that they may have to. Okay. A, a lot of it is, but some of it is. Some of it is just the way the law is. Interesting, and uh, you know the law has. It's there's just there's a lot of it. Um, maybe one day it'll get rationalised, but the, the in the UK there is a great reluctance to not stop using the old law. The old law is you know kind of viewed as quite holy and special and you know the way they've done in this new act under section 4l or gets all the old law gets reprocessed with a a sort of hypothetical assumption that certain things will be fair you know females will be treated like males and so on um but it's a huge burden on the practitioner because they've got to know all of that old law anyway in order to apply these assumptions to it, which is an enormous um, challenge. And what we're saying with Aura, look, you can run an inquiry, and if you have the data in 20 minutes or so, you'll get an outcome. And, um, you know, your client might qualify, but even if your client doesn't qualify, you've now covered that properly. You've met your duty of care obligation, and, and you can now move on to an immigration solution not worrying that um, you've overlooked. Now, is that it? Would the idea be that a a, a user, uh, an Aura user, would be using this in the kind of, I mean, with a prospective client and sort of in the sales stage or in the very early stages of their relationship with the client? Uh, um, yes. What what um, our customers are doing at the moment is they. I mentioned to you earlier. That the outcome, whether positive or negative, the report is always available. What we call the nationality report, um, which can be treated or incorporated into a client care letter. So, typically, a good immigration practitioner, what they are supposed to do is, if uh, somebody approaches them, having they'll have a. I mean, I'm talking about like the pre-pandemic days. Mm. They would have a phone call or there'd be some emailed information and they'll say, look, I think it's worth us having a meeting. And they would be have what is sometimes called an initial meeting or initial consultation. Mm-hmm. Some practitioners will do it for nothing. Many practitioners will charge, but they won't charge the full amount. Mm-hmm. So they'll say, okay, it can run up to an hour, but I'll only charge you for, you know, 40 minutes. You know, so the guy, uh, the person coming knows it's capped. If doesn't make sense. And at that initial meeting, the practitioner would gather information, fact-finding it's called, gather the information, and then by the end of the meeting, they would say to the the person, based on what you've told me, I think you probably qualify for this or that, um, or I don't think you qualify. Or sometimes you need to go away and get more information. And if they, and then what they are supposed to do is write a letter after the meeting to that client, setting out um, what was looked at at the meeting, the information gathered, and um, you know what their view on it is and the way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Um, uh, uh, practitioners are supposed to do that under the professional rules, but a lot of them are not doing it because if you put something in writing, it's got to be correct. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, it, it impo- you know, sometimes the time spent writing that letter after the meeting will be as long as the meeting, right. if I make sense. So what we're doing with, with Aora is we're providing that report. If the data has been gathered during the meeting, uh, at the end of the meeting, when it reaches an outcome, the practitioner can, if he or she wishes, press a button and, hey, they've got a report for their client. And it will explain what's what the what facts have been gathered, what assumptions have been made, whether they appear to qualify or not, etc., etc., etc. It does it to a very high standard, in my view. And we put examples of our documents on our website for people to look at. So, what a lot of our, our, our cust- all of our customers at the moment are, are generating those reports as a way <clears throat> of getting leads. So they'll say to people, look. You've got some connections to the UK or a former colony. I think it's worth, you know, we suggest you get a report because only a report is going to tell you definitively what your prospects are. And they sell those reports. Um, uh, It's a huge business line for, for one company in the UK. They make a lot of money out of these reports. Um, And, uh, but it's a way of, you know, it's a cost-effective way of providing people with very good value. It's cost-effective for the practitioner and it's good value for the client. They get a report. And of course, if the report is positive, then that person can almost always, I would say, be converted into a client for the full service where the application is um, um, prepared and submitted by the practitioner, and and I and I, I kind of the, the the one additional thing that I want to mention is you know that's a very clear value proposition from my perspective to UK immigration practitioners, but uh, you know you also, as far as I understood, are interested in sort of putting this on the radar of practitioners, perhaps in the U.S., in Canada, and in, in other parts of the world where they there may be people who now, based on this new you know law that you mentioned. There may be more people eligible, effectively, for UK Correct. nationality. Yes, rather, rather perversely, it, this this new the the British laws actually work better for countries that are completely foreign, like the US. Mm-hmm. I mean, the US used to be a set of colonies, but that's so long ago; it it makes no difference. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of migration from the British Isles, you know, from the UK and from uh, Ireland. And um, and it's if someone's, you know, ancestors left Ireland before December 1922, they are in 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 the running here. And so it's it's um, it's very useful. Um, there are many, obviously, any country that had former connections to the UK or gets many migrants uh, or has had many migrants in the past from uh, the British Isles is a good candidate. Another quite interesting area we see is the Caribbean. And many people from the Caribbean have, over the years, um, migrated to the US. We think there's a big opportunity there and practitioners in the US can tap into that. 
So I would say as far as, if I may just talk about US practitioners a moment, it's going to be people with ancestry from the from the UK um, or um, existing colonies or people who've moved, who've been in former colonies subject to other conditions. They're all, you know, worthy of being um, evaluated. Mm. Um, different parts of the world, there'll be different levels of opportunity. You know, there's obviously, you know, many other countries um, which um, have had connections either with the UK or maybe the connections are go back a long time, but there's been a lot of migration, like the Australia and New Zealand, for example. So we are including, you know, in our in our approaches, you know, we, we are talking, I mean, our prime focus at the moment is UK-based practitioners, but practitioners who are located abroad, um, we are also going to be reaching out to. I mean, we're still at an early stage, we're still trying to sort of study that market and quantify it, but we see opportunities. Yeah, and that's kind of what you know why I asked the question um, in part to, uh, I guess, clarify who should be interested, right? Who out of the people who are listening, who should be interested? Clearly, so to take an example, an international, you get these international visa firms who do a lot of business for big companies in the UK and in, in, in fact, in all big economies, and instead of getting like a, a work visa somebody wants to go and work in the UK or Ireland, um, they should think about um, seeing if uh, they, you know, if, if they potentially qualify for British citizenship because a lot of money and time and stress can be avoided if they do qualify. And um, they can leap over a lot of um, hurdles. It's, it's interesting to me. I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but as an immigration practitioner, my yeah, you know, from a policy standpoint, I then think to myself. So basically, the UK with you know the new expansion, and if I understood correctly, the new expansion of the law is now allowing for people with matrilineal descent, yes. as well, right? Because before that, it was now, only patrilineal descent hmm. that was tied to the UK's. R- roughly speaking, yes. For well, before 1983, it was patrilineal. Got it. But with Aura, everything's checked up. So right, uh, we look at. You know, all possibilities are evaluated. You know, it might be patrilineal at one generation and and, and matri, matrilineal at another generation. All, all, every possible permutation will have been explored. So, in a way, the UK may be adding a lot of citizens and new citizens in the coming years. Is that, do you right. think? Wow. And, and is that? Do you think that that's sort of? I mean, not to dive into politics necessarily, but do you feel that that's a policy that the UK is sort of pushing for and and I guess I'll, I'll I'll the context here is when I look at for example Canada Canada has made it very publicly clear that they are looking to add hundreds of thousands of new permanent residents and Canadians over the next handful of years you know to support to maintain population growth support the growing economy is that something that the UK is doing as well with this law or it is unrelated you know that's an interesting thought possibly um but I think the main driver for it is that people have been... What happened was in 2002 and then in 2006, some changes were done to the law 
to try and remediate the discriminate, particularly the gender discriminatory aspects. Mm. And the way they decided to do it was, okay, let's just pretend mothers were treated equally to fathers in the old law. Um, and the old law, despite its huge volume and complexity and everything, let's just pretend and make that uh, hypothetical, make that change and apply it in a hypothetical scenario. And that type of approach is, in the, in the world of computational logic, it's called a counterfactual approach. It's it's very easy for someone, for a drafts person to write that. But for the practitioner, it's a bit of a nightmare because you've got to then think about, well, what could, what could possibly have happened in the past? You know, it forces upon the practitioner to look at all of these scenarios. And that style of approach has stuck, and the there's been a certain amount of lobbying and pressure in recent years about making the old law more amenable. Uh, you know, equalizing. So the the law that came out, the change in the original version of four C that came out in two thousand and two, just said if mothers were treated equally to fathers, then we you you have a claim. They then had a vast number of applications uh, uh, appear. Most of the more, um, how can I put it, ambitious ones from one firm. And then they changed the law just to limit it to one generation, just to the immediate mother. Or in, two, in a change to the law in 2006, so it became much more restrictive, but it was very popular. And but people said, but you know, there's still you haven't remediated the situation of grandparents, great grandparents, and uh, the independence legislation for all these colonies only allowed people to retain citizenship if they had a patrilineal link to the UK. Um, that's discriminatory, that needs to be fixed. Right. So, with this law, I think it's been primarily addressing these complaints about the law that have been around for some years. But, you know, perhaps, you know, the fact of increasing the number of British citizens is something that they, you know, they thought perhaps this isn't a bad idea either. You know. I don't know. Right. Uh, the bill the bill was came to Parliament. Um, it was drafted, I think, by the government lawyers. Um, it uh, they didn't really reveal a huge amount. I didn't see very much when the bill was presented. I think it was just cumulative lobbying and probably internal suggestions in the Home Office. Interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I, I haven't heard anything about, you know, UK saying we want more people, but... No. I, I would just add one, one further thing. The act that the nationality provisions like 4L have been added to only one part of that act is to do with nationality. The rest of it is to do with immigration. Those parts were highly contentious, and the news was swamped with that, so that the nationality provisions got very little attention in the news. It was the treatment of, um, you know, changes to, to the rights of refugees and asylum seekers and 
and so on and so on and so on. That that's what got um, almost all of the attention in the press. The nationality provisions were had minimal attention, yeah, and I think one reason is they're so complicated. I think a, a journalist who reads the stuff it just doesn't doesn't really make any sense. There's a high risk that if they write anything, it may turn out to be wrong anyway. So. It's, so you know, at this point, I guess as we wrap up here, um, what do you see for kind of the, for the future of Aora? Maybe right now, you know, what are you guys working towards? Um, obviously, your the the main focus at Salik is for is to get as many UK practitioners on the platform. I mean, it sounds to me like it's you know I'm allowed to say this because it's my show. It sounds like it's a no brainer for people to at least try it. Uh, because it feels like it's one of those things that would help them automate a portion of their practice, a portion of their of their sales process, which is a win-win scenario for everybody. Um, it also sounds like you're trying to get it into the hands of, you know, perhaps UK, uh, U.S. immigration professionals, U.K. immigration professionals, maybe in-house companies that move people around and want to see if there's an opportunity to have someone go work in the UK without having to go through a tier two work visa if perhaps they have, uh, you know, an opportunity to get British uh, nationality um, is, you know, and I know that you're still the earliest stages. So that what I've outlined is already a lot of work to get Aora in the hands of all these people. Are you thinking beyond that at all right now as well? Or is it kind of like work, you know, head down, working sales, getting in front of people, testing out building up? I would say what you've described is primarily is really what's in front of us as far as AOR nationality is concerned. There will no doubt be feedback from people. They may want some changes. Um, we may get some feedback which says, "Can you add this immigration area?" Or, or, and and we'll we'll think about it. We'll give it serious consideration. Um, but that's really our focus. Um, uh, right now is just getting it out primarily to UK practitioners in the UK and then practitioners abroad. Yeah, awesome. Um, and of course, people can find uh, so there's aoralaw.com I think is the main website but then when you click on the nationality um, to get to the nationality module, it sort of brings them to a different URL. Yeah. They, can, they can find everything at aoralaw.com A-O-R-A law.com. They, they can get they can get an outline but if they want to get the full information about your nationality, that's on the separate website. Got it. Okay, great. Um, and there we provided video, a video. Um, we've also provided a link to an online catalog of example documents so they can actually see. And it's very often when we do demonstrations, it's when people actually see the documents. That's very often the wow mm -hmm. time. You know, yeah, because it's 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 well written. It's yeah. I mean, listen, you're talking to an immigration tech guy. The fact that you can automate the intake of information, you automate the analysis, and you automate at least the drafting of a robust template. <laughs> I mean, that's what technology is there for. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, great. So you know, for folks listening, definitely you know, please check out aorlaw.com and and check out the nationality. Um, Determiner, determiner. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and just to make it more fun to read, we've included some prominent Americans in our example reports: um, Hillary and Bill Clinton, and the Trump family, and a few others. And it's surprising, you know, how many of them may actually qualify. Well, 
Hillary qualifies, Bill doesn't. Um, mm. He, uh, but it's a near miss. Um, the late Ivanka Trump qualifies for British citizenship because she was married to Donald before 1983. His two children born before 1988 also qualify. Interesting. Um, um, the children of Mia Farrow qualify, um, even though none of her ancestors are born in Britain, but they're born in Ireland. Uh, Woody Allen doesn't qualify because he never married. Um, um, but if he had, he would. And um, Barack Obama, unfortunately, he was a UK citizen for a time, but he lost that at the Independence Kenya. And the new act doesn't provide a remediation for him. Um, but what I've noticed in doing this is a surprising number of people who've migrated from the Caribbean to the US. You know, it's very interesting, like the late um, Henry Belafonte and um, uh, Colin Powell and so on. Mm. People who've had very successful careers. Mm. Um, and depending on which island they, they their ancestors come from, they may they may be in the charts. Wow! Um, so you know, just to make it a bit more interesting, we as I say, we put. I kind of want to just send all celebrities. Of, well, I kind of want to send all of my friends, you know, anybody who might potentially have a tie, and say, check this out. What if you have potential nationality? Uh, I almost wish you guys made it like, you know, just available to the public for everyone to check out to see. I mean, I, I imagine hundreds of thousands of people would be going in there just to see if they may qualify. That could be something fun. Um, it could, and one one thing we will do further down the line for practitioners is to expose the front end through a portal. You know, that's going to be one of our developments next year, so that the clients can actually they can send their clients a link, and then the fact finding can be done remotely. Mm-hmm. You know, since the pandemic, certainly in Britain and perhaps elsewhere, people have got used to using websites a lot more. They don't need to meet face to face as much, um, you know. And if you're doing business, especially business with the government or like an insurance company, you got to do a lot of stuff online. And and so that portal where the customer, instead of having a meeting, the, the practitioner says, "Well, look, here's a link. It's going to ask you questions." But at this stage, um, you know, we think we'd like the inquiries to be done by either the practitioners or people they employ, um, you know, who are familiar with the system. Because we don't want mistakes. We have a reputation to uphold. Right. And, um, you know, we want to make sure the outcomes are correct. And, I mean, that sounds like a great roadmap, right, to work towards where uh, to be able to surface that for the individual through some sort of an online widget or or interface. Um, That's great. Well, Bruce, this this has been fantastic. I mean, so interesting and um, thank you for sharing. I mean, just your 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 whole life story is you know is 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 fascinating, and it's really it's it's actually really cool that you know you you do have you do come from this entrepreneurial background. And you had you had started and exited a company, and sort of had that experience before getting into the immigration space, because that means that you're coming into this um, with a you know kind of a wealth of of knowledge and experience of building software. Um, which, you know, I think I'm a first time entrepreneur. I'm not saying what I'm doing is wrong, but what I, I am saying is if I was doing it a second time around, I would do it better. 
and some i think it's great uh to you know to have uh, to have that skill and and acknowledge that you bring to the to the table within the industry um you know before we kind of close uh i i'm curious i, I kind of like to end on a you know maybe a fun or you know, kind of a lighter um question but i i i'm curious do you have any sort of like what's your kind of fondest memory of growing up in in zimbabwe and and i i'm almost like personally curious because again i i don't know anybody who grew up and spent time there i mean what's kind of like the maybe fondest or happiest uh more most fun thing that comes to mind um it's a little bit hard for me to say i'd say if i could answer that by saying there are a number of things the space sunny days every day and um very friendly people you know in all parts of society friendly and courteous um, you know, or at least enough of them in that category. I think the yeah, it's a, it's a bit it's a bit hard to say. I mean, I I think probably just the space um, and the scenery. You know, mm. bush. I, I I sometimes find the a certain amount of sparseness in the landscape attractive, mm. um, and the colours of the of the of the bush in sub-Saharan Africa, I think are very attractive. You know, there's some beautiful colours you get in the trees and so on. So those are my memories are kind of a, a mixture of things. Where I, I hope I've managed to bring it across. Yeah, no, I mean it, it sounds it sounds it sounds beautiful. I've, I've I've never really the only the only country I've ever visited in Africa is Egypt, and very different landscape, very different society. You know, versus South and Southwest. Um, Africa. So, thank you for painting that picture. Um, so, uh, Bruce, thanks again. I mean, this was really wonderful. Uh, we we I encourage people to check out Aora, um, and of course, the uh, thank you, Sean, for sharing it in the in the comments. Aora nationality dot com is the the link for folks to see the actual go directly to the site for the nationality determiner piece. Um, so, Bruce, you know, best of luck. I'm excited to continue to watch. What the team does and and um we'll definitely be sharing the good word to all of my you know folks in immigration particularly particularly on the uk side and um you know i hope to in a couple of years once you this company gets acquired you know we'll be interested to see what next what you start next so but in the meantime again best of luck and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story well thank you very much roman much appreciated that I've been able to talk here. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, everybody. I don't have a lot of commentary because this is such a great and robust uh, conversation. But I, for me, one of the biggest takeaways was just this, you know, the idea of I started the show kind of thinking about uh, who else is out there that wants to build technology within the immigration industry and, and how, you know, at least when I was building Laborless, I had no one to look to um, who was building tech in this space. And for me, the goal was always to bring uh, together people and have folks share their story who have done it, um, because I think it is a bigger space and it's a more uh, impressive and inspiring space than kind of, you know, the media gives it uh, credit for. So, uh, you know, this sort of this idea that if you find a challenge in immigration, wherever you are in the world, um, and if you think there's a way that immigrate, that technology can help uh, solve it or, or, or make it better, um, go for it. So... Thanks, everybody. Have a great 
weekend great rest of your week and um talk to you next time peace